Welcome to the Constructor Cast, your AGC place for the news and views relevant to the construction industry. My name is Scott Barry, your host for this episode. Uh, today we'll be talking the 2016 elections, and we have with us AGC's David Ashinoff, the director of AGC PAC and political advocacy. Welcome, David. Thank you. All right, let's jump right in. In general, what's your overall take on this election season? I mean, number one, I, I think it's definitely been a fascinating thing to watch for, for those who are interested in politics. I mean, looking back in you know 2015 and, and thinking about where we are now, who would have thought that we'd be at a place where Donald Trump would have vanquished 16 Republican leaders, including you know top governors, former governors, U.S. senators, and that Bernie Sanders, a, a 74-year-old socialist, would have won 20 Democratic contests over you know the former first lady and secretary of state Hillary Clinton. You know, it's essentially an election that's defied all conventional wisdom thus far. So looking at how the campaign rallies, protests, gatherings, everything, the, the, the narrative that's been building, how divided is the country right now? I think we're definitely a divided country. When you look at the polls of adults who identify themselves as Democrats, as Republicans, as independents, you've got about a third, a little less than a third who identify as Democrats, and even less so that identify as Republicans. But you've got a growing percentage now that identify themselves as independents. And that number essentially has grown since 2008 to about 2014, uh, where now we've got about 42% of adults identifying as independents. And I think that's primarily because of the gridlock that we see here in D.C. and and the frustration that average Americans are having over it. You know, you look at the Gallup poll about the biggest problems facing the country, and the number one problem folks identified isn't the economy. It's not jobs. It's not terrorism. It's not debt. It's dissatisfaction with government. And that's really why I think you're seeing a a more divided country and, and folks identifying more and more as independents versus one of the, the major political parties. You know, and I think that that sentiment's confirmed when you look at other polling. You know, you see the president at an average approval rating of 49 uh, percent. Congress's approval rating, you know, barely breaking double digits. Uh, in fact, it's about a 13 percent right now being less popular than root canals, lice, the DMV, and the band Nickelback. Uh, <laughs> you, when you take these polls, And add sentiments expressed uh, from a 2015 Pew poll uh, showing that only 19% of Americans trusted the federal government. Uh, You can understand the popularity of untraditional candidacies like Sanders, like Trump, and how they're getting upwards of 30,000 folks to attend the rallies. The question is, do Sanders and Trump's critiques that the system is fixed against average Americans, coupled with voters' frustrations at the federal government, does that cause them to throw the baby out with the bathwater? And, and, you know, how is that going to affect uh, down-ballot races in the Senate and the House? So the country is partisan as it is. Uh, what exactly are you looking at on the House side? How is that affecting House races? So currently you've got about 27 members who are retiring, another 18 who are seeking another office. So of the 435 races, you've got about 58 that are competitive. So just about 13%. Uh, broken down, that's 13 Democrats and 45 Republicans that are vulnerable. Um, That 58 number includes those seats that are currently rated as likely Democratic and likely Republican. So there's a good chance that the majority of those are going to be reelected simply because they're in the likely category at this point. So if you really want to narrow it down to really vulnerable races, I'd say that number's more like 36 at this point. And there's only three Democrats in that column and 33 Republicans. 
So it seems like a pretty big difference. Why are there so many more Republicans that are vulnerable than Democrats in those truly competitive seats? For one, you've got a large number of Republicans, you know, because the party's just been so successful over the past uh, few elections in picking off what are commonly referred to as blue dog Democrats. Uh, those moderate Democrats who tend to be more pro-business and uh, aren't from districts that are heavily Democratic. While Republicans lost eight seats in 2012, you know, they picked up 63 seats in 2010 and 13 seats in 2014. And so over the past three elections, they've netted a total of 68 seats. And that success brought them their largest majority since the Great Depression. Um, but in a presidential election where the electorate demographics change, uh, many of these districts become competitive again. So it wasn't that they just had good candidates in those last couple of cycles? No, I mean, there's other factors at play. The other reason you've got a small number of competitive seats is really because of how lines for congressional districts have been drawn. Uh, the party that controls this process at the state level is the party that's going to benefit under the new maps. And clearly Republicans did better than Democrats uh, after the last reapportionment. And to kind of sidetrack the discussion for a minute, you know, after 2014, we saw headlines noting the death of the Republican Party. But if you look at the state level, you know, that couldn't have been further from the truth. Under President Obama, Republicans picked up 900 seats in state legislatures. They currently hold 31 governorships to the Democrats' 18, uh, with one being held by an independent. Uh, they control the governorship and state legislature in 24 states and control 70 of the 99 state legislative chambers. Uh, in 30 states, they control both chambers. So if Democrats really hope to reverse any of the GOP gains in the House, they're going to have to start at the state level first, and that begins with reimportionment uh, after the next census. All right, so getting back to the current election cycle then, does that mean that there's a chance the Republicans lose their majority in the House? I think those with hopes of seeing Nancy Pelosi return as speaker are going to be pretty disappointed uh, come November 9th. Because you had a limited number of competitive seats, it's really difficult for Democrats to net the 30 necessary seats. Um, you know, while I think Republicans are going to lose several seats this election, I don't think it's going to be anywhere near the 30 needed. And you know, to be perfectly honest, unless there's some massive realignment or wave election, I think you see the House stay under Republican control until at least the next reapportionment in 2020. All right, so turning our attention to the Senate, only a third of the Senate's ever up in any given election cycle, which in this case is 34. So what are we seeing there? One of the biggest Senate developments we've seen this cycle is that you've got Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid of Nevada stepping down after five terms. You know, he's going to be accompanied by Senators Boxer, Coates, Mokulski, Rubio, and Vitter, uh, who are also opting not to seek re-election. What's interesting about the Senate races this year is that you've got an almost reverse scenario than what we saw in 2014, where Republicans had a small number of seats to defend. Uh, this year, they've got 24 seats up for a lot of Democrats, 10. Okay, so of those 10, which are actually competitive? Well, there's good news for Democrats in that they've only really got two competitive races. The first being in Colorado, where Senator Michael Bennett is seeking re-election. Uh, Republicans have yet to coalesce around uh, one candidate, and there's several still in the primary process out there. Moving just slightly west, you've got the open Nevada seat right there where Harry Reid is retiring. He's handpicked former state attorney general Catherine Cortez Masto. Uh, while she's going to be the nominee, Republicans still got to go through their process, but that likely candidate is going to be current Congressman Joe Hecht. 
So those two really are the only competitive races right now that Democrats are going to have to defend. And uh, there's a, a good chance if Republicans can um, coalesce around a, a candidate in Colorado pretty soon that they can pick off both of those seats. But it's definitely going to be a tough election in both those states. All right. So conversely, then, how many of the 24 Republican seats are competitive? Which ones are they? Well, they've got a lot more that are going to be competitive than the two that Democrats have. Of those 24 Republican seats that are up for a re-election this year, you've got about seven that are competitive. And of that seven, you've only got one, at least that's an open seat race at this point in time. And that's down in Florida with uh, Senator Marco Rubio retiring. Democrats are going to nominate a current congressman, and that's going to either be Alan Grayson or Patrick Murphy. On the Republican side, you've got uh, five credible candidates running. But if you've seen recent news developments, there's a lot of pressure upon Senator Rubio to, instead of retire, uh, to seek another term, simply to have a better chance at protecting that seat um, from whoever the Democratic nominee becomes. You know, then we have races where incumbent Republicans are running for re-election. Uh, the two most worrisome at this point, I think, in time are Illinois and Wisconsin. In Illinois, Senator Mark Kirk is being challenged by Congresswoman Tammy Duckworth. And uh, up in Wisconsin, you've got former Senator Russ Feingold seeking a rematch against Senator Ron Johnson. You know, after those two, uh, then we look at states like New Hampshire, North Carolina, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. Up in New Hampshire, Democrats really had a successful recruitment. Uh, they were able to convince the current governor, Maggie Hassan, to, to run against Senator Kelly Ayotte. And that's really going to be a tough race up there. Down south to the Tar Heel State in North Carolina, you've got uh, Senator Richard Burr, who is uh, being challenged by current state representative Deborah Ross. Over in Ohio, Senator Rob Portman is trying to beat back a challenge from uh, former Governor Ted Strickland. And lastly, you've got uh, Senator Pat Toomey, who's facing off against uh, the former chief of staff to Governor Wolf in Pennsylvania, uh, Kate McGinty. So it, it's really going to be a tough cycle for Republicans. So are there any other sort of sleeper races that are out there that we should be paying attention to beyond the competitive ones that you just mentioned? I wouldn't say that there's any sleeper races at this point in time. There's the potential for a few of them to become a little bit more competitive because it is politics and anything can happen and a candidate can say and do uh, anything on the campaign trail. The only ones I would suggest at this point are out in Missouri where Senator Roy Blunt is running for re-election uh, and uh, down in Arkansas where Senator John Bozeman is doing the same and Democrats have uh, successfully recruited uh, good candidates uh, to run against them. At this point I think both senators uh, will be reelected, but uh, there's the chance that they can become a little bit more competitive. All right, so then what is your 2016 Senate prediction right now? Put me on the line right now for prediction. Thanks, I appreciate that. But uh, as I said, anything can change uh, between now and November. But if, I, if you're holding me down and making me, you know, make a guess today, I'd say Republicans lose between two and four seats. So that's not control? At this point, no. So I know we haven't even gotten through 2016 yet, but what does all of this mean for the 2018 cycle, do you think? Well, while it's probably bad news for Republicans this cycle and losing a few seats, uh, and potentially the majority uh, should things change, you know, things flip again in 2018. Uh, Democrats are expected to have 25 seats up for re-election, um, and that includes two independents who caucus with them, uh, and Republicans are only expected to have eight seats. 
Now, we could certainly have some retirements between here and, and then, uh, but uh, that's certainly good news for Republicans, simply because they're defending much less than Democrats. And when you look at the states that are going to be up, you know, of those eight seats thus far that Republicans are going to have to defend in 2018, the only competitive ones that you could possibly see are Arizona and Nevada. And at this point, you know, those are leaning Republican, I would say. But then you look at the seats that Democrats have to defend, and that's states like Florida, Indiana, uh, Maine, uh, but that's held currently by an independent who caucuses with Democrats. But then you look at Michigan, Missouri, Montana, North Dakota, Ohio, Virginia, West Virginia, and Wisconsin, and uh, there's really good chances for Republicans to pick up a lot of seats there. All right, moving on to the presidential race now. Uh, we're in the twilight of the primaries here. So how do you see the primary process concluding? Yeah, you know, the primary process is nearing its end. Um, you know, we're heading into the general election right now with a Clinton-Trump matchup. Uh, Trump crossed the needed delegate threshold on May 26th, and Clinton did so uh, after securing the 89 delegates needed uh, after June 7th when, you know, we had voters head to the polls in, in California, Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, North Dakota, and South Dakota. Um, I'd say at this point that that matchup holds unless, you know, the only thing I could see derailing her nomination is the potential for FBI Director James Comey to, to recommend an indictment. Um, but uh, at this point, I'd say that that's what we see heading after the conventions and into to November. Okay, so then at this point, do you think Donald Trump is unifying the Republican Party? With Trump as the presumptive nominee now, you know, you're seeing more and more Republicans rally around his candidacy, including those that were previously on the, the Never Trump bandwagon, um, simply because no alternative conservative candidate came forward for them. As a result, you've seen Republican support for Trump increase. Uh, they now support him over Clinton 86% to 6%, and that is an increase of 14%. Um, from what we saw uh, at the end of April. But I think you'll continue to see some high-level Republican holdouts given Trump's lack of discipline on the campaign trail. Right before the Memorial Day holiday, he went after current Governor Susana Martinez of New Mexico. Um, she's not only the governor, but she's also chairwoman of the Republican Governors Association and their state's first female governor. You know, it simply doesn't make sense for the presumptive Republican nominee to go after a sitting Republican governor um, who's also the chair of the RGA. And I think that's definitely cause for concern by a lot of those Republican leaders. You know, the only explanation at this point that, you know, folks can think of is that she hasn't endorsed Trump and Trump wanted to send a message to other Republican officials. You know, either fall in line and endorse me or, or suffer my wrath on the campaign trail. Um, if you're trying to unify the party as its presumptive nominee, it's probably not the route you want to go down. So do you think Secretary Clinton is going to have an easier time unifying her party then? Well, looking at the, the Democratic side of things, you know, they haven't been much easier for, for Clinton. You know, in late May, the State Department Inspector General issued a report saying she didn't comply with the agency's policies. And then you still got Sanders out on the campaign trail hammering away at her, um, pulling her further to his left. So it's really a difficult time, too, on the, the Democratic side um, because you've really got two warring factions going on. While many voters may not like their options, and, and polls still definitely prove that, 
Trump and Clinton are the presumptive nominees of their respective parties. And, you know, what now? Uh, now we turn to the general election, uh, which is going to be fought in several battleground states. Okay, so where are those battleground states? Like, where is this election truly going to be won or lost? First off, we know that the winning candidate is going to need 270 electoral votes. Uh, Clinton's going to try to replicate the success Obama had in 2008 and 2012. Trump, on the other hand, is going to have to add to the states that Romney won in 2012, and he's going to have to pick up quite a few toss-up states, including the big ones, um, such as Florida, Ohio, and Virginia. All right, so looking at the battleground states in total, you've got about 10 of them where you had that small vote margin, and that's going to be states like, as I've said, Florida, Ohio, and Virginia, but also North Carolina, Colorado, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, Iowa, Nevada, and Wisconsin. You know, if Trump is successful at picking off, let's say, those three states that I mentioned previously, uh, he's going to have to pick off one more. And I'd say at this point, you know, those targets could potentially be Colorado or Iowa, um, but we're definitely seeing that he's got a better appeal to blue-collar voters than previous Republican nominees, and there's a chance that he puts states like Pennsylvania in play, which I would say could be a game-changer when it comes to electoral politics. So if, if you live in any of those battleground states, uh, I would say be prepared to be inundated with uh, political advertising, direct mail, uh, television ads, uh, because that's where these presidential and senatorial elections are going to be waged. Okay, so then let's talk a little bit about the electorate in this year um, compared to 2014. What's different? We know it's going to be larger than 2014 when only 36% of eligible voters participated. So that was one of the lowest turnout elections in recent memory, right? Yeah, absolutely. Lowest uh, turnout since, I think, 1942. Uh, we had about 47 million voters drop out between 2012 and 2014. Unlike 2014 and more like 2012, this electorate's going to be younger, it's going to be less white, and it's going to be more democratic. Voting patterns are probably going to be similar to 2012, where you saw a lot of party loyalty uh, or straight ticket voting. Um, partisan divide uh, between the two parties is an all-time high. So there's the likely scenario where you've got a large majority of the states that Obama won that are going to fall in that Democratic column again. And uh, the same goes for many of those states that Romney won. You know, as I said, uh, the fight's going to be waged in those battleground states where the 2012 margin was less than 10%. Okay, I want to shift a little bit into talking about what AGC is doing. So what is the association doing to prepare for this election? Well, I guess the, the first tool that we've got in our arsenal is our Federal Political Action Committee, AGC PAC. Uh, and it uh, works through the electoral process to support uh, pro-business candidates. And uh, what we're doing is really trying to replicate the success that we saw in 2014 uh, where 94% of uh, the AGC PAC-backed candidates are running on Election Day 1. As of today, AGC PAC uh, has contributed to 24 pro-construction Senate candidates and 113 House candidates. So where can we go to find out where that is? The easiest place to go is uh, www.agc.org backslash PAC, and uh, there's uh, a map uh, on one of those menu options under the disbursements to, to be able to literally click on your state and, and see who the PAC is supporting. So are we just supporting incumbents or are there other candidates in open seats? 
while contributing to pro-construction candidates is certainly one of our main focuses, you know, we're also looking at candidates across the country who are running in races that are in open seats or looking to challenge an incumbent who may not be supportive on our issues. Uh, thus far, we've met with about 33 of those candidates. Um, we're evaluating them and, and continue to look for other candidates who we may consider uh, contributing to if we know they're going to be better on our issues than someone who may be a current member of Congress. All right, so I know you conducted a member survey after the 2014 elections. Uh, what, what, what did you learn from that survey? We learned quite a bit from that survey, but uh, one of the, the major takeaways for me is that, you know, I noticed a lot of our member companies weren't talking about politics and public policy to their employees. So why do you think so few of these companies are having those conversations with their members? Well, I think it's difficult for some employers to kind of engage employees about politics, elections, and candidates, because it, it seems to potentially be one of those topics you kind of keep out of the workplace. Um, but in fact, what we learned through BIPAC research survey is that that isn't necessarily what employees want. Um, the first major takeaway from that survey um, that BIPAC did uh, with employees across the country is that employees want to hear from their employers about candidates, about elections, about issues. Um, they consider their employers to be the most credible source of information, and that's over the media, political parties, labor groups, uh, and other you know sources they come across on, on the internet. So what is AGC doing to make it easier for our member companies to have those conversations with their employees? The one thing that I would recommend for all of our member companies uh, to do, as well as their employees, is to visit constructionvotes.com. This is a one-stop shop website where member company employees can get information on how to register to vote, uh, how to view the state and federal candidates that are going to be on the ballot, how to find a polling location, how to learn about voting early or by absentee. But at the same time, it's also a place for our member companies uh, to get information as employers uh, on how to encourage their employees to participate in the electoral process. And that's, you know, something as easily as downloading our guide uh, for those activities or, you know, using the sample language that we provide for everyone. Uh, to use in custom emails to, to their employees or on social media pages. Uh, those sound like some really helpful and useful tools, but I think we're going to have to wrap it up there. So uh, I'd like to thank AGC's David Ashinoff for sharing his insight with us today. Thank you. And we'd like to thank you for listening. This has been the AGC Constructor Cast.